Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, as I said, it's very unusual. This guy comes out of nowhere. So we have to answer three questions about Melchizedek and his priesthood. Where did he come from? And who is he? And then why did Abram give him a tenth of everything that he got from the four kings from the north? What, why was the point of that? So that's going to be our focus for today. We're going to try to figure out why, this is, why Melchizedek did this, where he came from, who he is, and how he is the type of Jesus as the great high priest. So since we don't have much to go on, we only have these three verses. Verse 18 says that he's the king of Salem. Now, this Salem that he's the king of is most likely Jerusalem, which is later named Jerusalem, and we, we find that it becomes the capital of Israel under King David. And, but the word Salem also means peace. So it says that he is the king of Salem. So he is a picture of peace. Now, Abram was probably pretty hungry, worn out from this battle that took place with all these kings, his 318 men. It doesn't say that any of them died. So they all came back. And they're probably pretty worn out, hungry. You guys ever, like, worked in the yard pick, pulling weeds? Well, I think we talked about weeds a couple weeks ago. You know, you get done doing that, you're pretty worn out. You need some food. You need some sustenance. Well, that's what Melchizedek comes to take care of. He comes out. He brings bread and wine. And then he shows that he was a servant, Melchizedek. Despite being a king, he was willing to put others first. The type of provisions that he brings are also significant to his purpose. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Melchizedek was not only a king, but it also says that he was priest of God Most High. And as priest of God Most High, he had the ability to honor God and bless Abram on behalf of God. He speaks of God as creator of heaven and earth. And we know that God the Father created all things by the work of God the Son's hands, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity were at work in the process of creation. Melchizedek understood this. He reminded Abram that it was the hand of God that delivered him from his enemies. Hmm. Who else might we know from Scripture that will deliver us from our enemies? Probably the seed of promise that we talked about last week. We know that Jesus is that answer. Abram responds to Melchizedek by giving him a 10% or a tithe of the spoils. Now, allow me to get onto a little bit of a soapbox about tithing for a second. So I can help, hopefully, people understand what scripture says about tithing. Because this can be a very contentious subject in the church today. And since I'm up here, I get the chance to just share a little bit about it. So, people ask, how much should a Christian or should a Christian not give? This is a rigorously debated subject. People are either on one end of the spectrum or on the other end of the spectrum, and sometimes you got little people that are in the middle of the spectrum. Well, let's figure out where we belong. 
And then on top of that, people argue, okay, well, do I give 10% off of my gross or off of my net? What's the difference? How do I do that with taxes? Do I, do I give 10% of my tax return? So on and so forth. So people get really confused about how to do that. So this is what I say. Oh, then there's the other, I'm sorry, the other extreme. You should give whatever your heart desires. That's the other extreme. Give whatever your, your heart tells you to give. That one makes me cringe a little bit, but I'll tell you why. Because God does love a cheerful giver. But I'll explain that in just a second. So to both sides, I say this. If you're the guy who says, guy or girl, that says, I have to give 10% every check, every week, all the time, financial contribution to the church. Or you're on the other side of the extreme and says, I'll just give whatever I've got in my heart to give. I say to both of you, hogwash, that's not what the Bible says. The tithe was not established until the law of Moses was given, to God at Mount, given by God at Mount Sinai. Abram lived long before his great-grandson, Levi. We know that it was Levi's descendants who would become those who serve at the tabernacle and later at the temple who would receive the tithes from the people of Israel. The Israelites were required to pay the tithe, are you ready? On three separate occasions through the year. Three. Not once. Not once a week. Now, we get paid once a week, so we should take that into consideration. They didn't. They had a, they had a springtime and a, and a fall harvest, and that's when they would take the tithes as far as what they earned. But there were three particular tithes. And they were required to pay them on three separate occasions, plus one more every third year, none of which were monetary offerings. The first tithe was given, was called the Levitical or the sacred tithe. It can also be referred to as the tithe of the feasts. This was given to the Levites to help pay for upkeep on the tabernacle and later the temple. This also fed the Levites and the priests since they had no inheritance like the other tribes of Israel. This occurred three times a year. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Every time you went, or they went, to celebrate one of the feasts, they would take 10% of what your fields yielded, your vineyards provided, as well as the firstborn of all your livestock. And they would take it, and they would take it to the tabernacle, or later the temple, and they would have the priests sacrifice the animals, and then you would cook the food, and then guess what? You would eat it, your family would eat it, and you would share with the Levites and the priests. So, did you take money? Did they take money and put it into a storehouse and call that the tithe? No, they didn't. They took what their fields yielded, what their vineyards supplied, and the firstborn of all their flocks. And they took those, and then they ate them in celebration of those three feasts. That happened three times a year. So it was treated as a festival, and it was kind of like a party, and you got to take part in what you gave to God. Now, today, that would be like bringing a financial contribution to the church, and then that money is then used for you to do ministry outside the four walls of the church. Does that make sense? 
And it also pays the pastor and the staff that are being used by God in full-time ministry to be able to take care of their families. So it's the same concept as what happened with the Levites and the priests. The second tithe was the tithe for the poor. And this is the one that's a little different. This was not a yearly tithe. It happened every third year. And then once again, you would come and you would bring 10% of your yearly yield of what you made off of your... You would, you would actually bring the food. You would bring the, the crops. You would bring the wine. You would bring you know, the firstborn of the flock. You would bring all those things again. And that was to provide for the Levites, the priests, the widows, and the orphans. These are the poor that is spoken of. So for those who say that you absolutely must give 10% of your income every week, I have a question. Are you under the law of Moses? Do you live in Israel? Are you able to go to a temple that still exists today? Can anyone answer that question? Are you able to go to a temple that exists today where sacrifices are being offered? The answer is emphatically no. There is no temple in Israel. It's been destroyed in AD 70. You are incapable of paying the same tithe that the Israelites paid. You're incapable of doing it. There is no sacrifice today. And then, if your answer were yes, because you believe you could pay that tithe, why are you only giving 10%? They gave 30 and 40 every third year. So your tithe is insufficient if you believe it's only 10%. Tithe does mean 10, but they gave it three times and four on every third year. Now, that's the one extreme. But for those of you that say you should only give what your heart says to give, you should probably check your heart. Are you using what God has gifted you for greedy pleasure? Are you using the other 90% for those of us that believe in 10% tithing? Are you using the other 90% for yourself? What are you doing with it? How are you using it? Is it using, being used to honor God? Are you... As James says, true religion is that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Are we doing that? Our great high priest would ask us, check your heart if we're not doing those things. But keep in mind, this isn't all gloom and doom. We are talking about our great high priest. So I want you to understand that both sides are extreme. The staunch 10 percenter and the free giver are both wrong. Do what God says. He loves a cheerful giver who does everything he or she can to honor him and care for those he loves. Abram was not required to give Melchizedek this 10 percent. He chose to because he wanted to honor God most high by giving his high priest an offering. He wanted to make sure that Melchizedek was taken care of, even though he just met him and he only got three verses. And I hate to say this, but if this is all we have about Melchizedek, we don't really have much to go for this message, do we? 
We know a little bit about him. We know that he's acting on behalf of God. He took Abraham's offering on behalf of God. But as I said before, it's a very weird encounter. It happens, happens seemingly out of nowhere. It's mysterious in that it interrupts the flow of the chapter. Abram is about to encounter this pagan king who wants to honor and reward him for saving the day, not God. And then right before he's about to speak, Melchizedek shows up. As if this king was just silenced for a moment for Melchizedek to say what he had to say to Abram. And to feed him. So where do we go for help when Scripture starts to confront us? Well, as we know from our rules, Scripture interprets Scripture, so we got to look somewhere else, don't we? As I said before, we get one more glimpse of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, this is what it says. Verses 1 through 4, we get a little piece, King David sharing with us a messianic prophecy. He says, the Lord, this is verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Your rule, you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. King David, speaking under inspiration, gives us this messianic prophecy. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And then verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God doesn't change his mind ever. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Doesn't the Old Testament priesthood come through the line of Aaron through the tribe of Levi? If we don't know much about this Old Testament priesthood, the first covenant priesthood, the, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Levitical priesthood, we'll have a hard time understanding who Melchizedek really is. So good for you guys. I'm going to share it with you. So hopefully you're excited as much as I am because... If I didn't tell you before, I love sharing the Word of God. I get fired up about it, and it doesn't have to be from a stage. It's right, anybody I come in contact with. If you'll let me talk about Jesus, we're going to get going. So here we go. <sighs> Since this is a messianic prophecy, we, might, we have to turn to the New Testament to find answers to all of this confusion. Maybe we can get a better understanding of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood and its differences from the priesthood of Melchizedek there. So... Hebrews chapter 4. I told you to earmark that, right? So flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to do a little bit of reading, so hang with me. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. 
No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I become your father. And he says in another place, which we know so well, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jump down to chapter 6 and verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now let's talk a little bit about Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, once again, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of the priests, of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus, because he lives forever, has, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for our own sins, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all 
when he offered himself. For the law appointed appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who is made perfect forever. Six more verses. Hang with me. I know it's rough. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both, God, both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there would be already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is found on better promises. Now that's a lot. But there's a reason why I read all those words. There are four things to note about the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. Number one, all priests are Levites, but not, Le not all Levites are priests. The Levites were all set apart for service in the tabernacle or temple. They were given no inheritance to the, in the promised land, and they lived among each of the tribes and served the people. However, all priests come from the line of Aaron, who Aaron is a Levite. But all the priests that serve in the temple had to be of Aaron's descent, not just Levi's descent. So when you read in scripture about the Levites, those are the people that serve at the temple. They, they sing, they play music, they make sure the priests have everything they need in place. But they don't actually make the sacrifices on the altar. Only the priests did that, and they were only of the tribe of Aaron, of the line of Aaron. So, again, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Number two, priests are sinners just like everyone else. Now, there are a lot of denominations that utilize priests in different ways. The use of a priest... In worship, in what we call the liturgy, is actually blasphemous because we no longer need priests to offer sacrifices because Jesus Christ made the one and only sacrifice that's sufficient to pay for our sins. It's one and done. So the fact that they use priests is actually a non-biblical practice, and it's blasphemy. They could never offer a perfect sacrifice because they were just as sinful as you and me. Number three, the high priest was selected from among men. He had to offer sacrifices to purify himself from his own unrighteousness before he could even do anything on behalf of the people. And number four, the yearly sacrifice on Israel's high holy day of Yom Kippur, which is referred to as the Day of Atonement in English, was necessary to temporarily cover the sins of the people for one year. But this happened repeatedly because... No one was perfect to offer the sacrifice, and none of the sacrifices were actually perfect animals. This type of sacrifice was always insufficient to make man right with a holy God. Do you realize that there is no animal sacrifice because of the destruction of the temple in AD 70? That fact that that no longer continues means there's no high priest in Israel right now. 
But they celebrate Yom Kippur every year, the high holy day of Israel. Every, every year it's, it's celebrated. This year it will be on October 5th. They will celebrate by giving tithes and offerings and celebrating and, and making a big spectacle of this high holy day. Do you know when the high holy day was? You guys know? Good Friday. That's when Jesus paid for our sins. That's the day of atonement. And three days later, he rose from the grave, killing sin and death and giving us a way into God's righteousness. Jesus did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. God conferred it upon him. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110.4 saying, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, is Melchizedek Jesus? There are a lot of scholars that will tell you that Melchizedek is Jesus. That he's a pre-incarnate person of Jesus. He's not. Do you remember what I said about types and shadows at the beginning of this message? Melchizedek is simply a picture of Jesus. And how do we know? The answer is found right there in chapter 7 of Hebrews. I read it. The text says that even though Melchizedek is without father or mother, he's without genealogy, he's without beginning of days or end of life, it says he's like the Son of God. And it repeats it again, that he is like the Son of God. But he remains a priest forever. Now that seems contradictory at first. How could he, how could he, how could he be a man who's serving as a priest without beginning of life or end of, or beginning of days or end of life, without a genealogy, without a father or mother? That seems odd. When we think about that, we think that that would be God, right? Well, that's not what the text is revealing to us. Why doesn't he have a father or a mother? Why doesn't he have a genealogy? Why don't we know about his beginning of days or his end of life? Because that really does sound like he's before all things. And we know only one person who's before all things. Can I, can I get an amen? You have to pay close attention to the text. Despite those things that lead us to believe that he is before all things, the text says that in these ways he is once again like the Son of God. That word like is very important here in English. The Melchizedek priesthood is what I want you to understand is an office. It's not just Jesus pre-incarnate in the flesh prior to his birth by the Virgin Mary. This man who met Abram was not pre-incarnate form of Jesus. He was just a man who God made to be priest of a certain order that would ultimately place on Jesus himself. Some scholars actually believe that the man who came in the order of Melchizedek to meet Abram was none other than Shem, the son of Noah. Now, when we look at the age difference between Noah and his seventh great-grandson, or his great-grandfather, seven great-grandfather Shem. There's a huge gap in, in age, right, of time. But here's the deal. Shem was still alive when Noah walked the earth. 
Look it up. Look up a timeline of when they were walking the earth. Shem was still alive when his seven-time great-grandson Abram was walking the earth. So it's quite possible that these scholars are correct. Because Shem survived the flood. He was, in the, he was in the ark with Noah. So his great, 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 great grandson, Abram, was born and lived during the time he was still alive. Now, it's only speculation that it was actually Shem that came in the order of Melchizedek and spoke to Abram. It's only speculation. But I tend to believe that this is the truth. Shem is the father of the Semites, who Abram is descended through. The priesthood of Melchizedek is not one of ancestry. It says he has no genealogy, right? It says he doesn't have a father or mother, no beginning of days or end of life. So it's not a, a priesthood of ancestry. It's one of God's perfect plan. Abram is the man to whom God credited righteousness on account of his faith. That's the reason that Melchizedek came to Abram. Because he believed God. The priesthood of Melchizedek is one that remains forever. We now understand that Melchizedek was a man that was sent to Abram by God himself. He is a priest. But he's not an Aaronic priest. He's a priest of a different order. He's also a king. In scripture you will not find another king who is also a priest. The kings came from the line of Judah, or if you look at Israel, a ton of different guys, whoever was strong enough to take the throne for the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom of Judah, every king came from the line of Judah. But as far as the priesthood, they all came through Aaron. But in this case, this man is a king and a priest. Now it's possible that you could argue that King David was a priest and a king even though he was only from the line of Judah because the same thing he speaks of about having the order of Melchizedek is upon him here in Psalm 110. He wore an ephod and he ate consecrated bread like only the priest can do. So it's possible that you could argue that. But other than these things, there's no argument for him being a priest. Unless, of course, he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But we don't have time for that rabbit trail. Let's move on. That brings us to Jesus. We know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know that he comes through the kingly line of David. So if priests come from the line Levi through the line of Aaron, how can the Bible claim that Jesus is a high priest? Because once again, his priesthood is not given by ancestry. It's given by God. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's both king of kings and priest of God most high, just as Melchizedek was. He's not Melchizedek. He's the fulfillment of Melchizedek's priesthood. Three things make Jesus our great high priest. Number one, his perfect priesthood. The chosen high priest only served that duty for one year. He was a sinner just like you and me, and he had to offer sacrifices to temporarily cover his own sins even before he could offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation. His ministry was insufficient. When Jesus sacrificed him on the, himself on the cross, the perfect atonement took place. The righteous God of the universe took our place in death. And at that very moment that Jesus died and gave up his spirit, the veil that guarded the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn from top to bottom and opened the door for the entire world 
so that we might see Jesus as the perfect sacrifice and have an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior who will set us apart from everybody else that doesn't follow him, that will give us an eternity with him, ultimately in heaven. We now have access to the throne of grace by his redeeming blood that was shed for us and by the power of his resurrection. Number two, his perfect person. The end of 414 identifies our great high priest by his human name, Jesus, and his divine title, Son of God. Verse 15 speaks of how Jesus can relate to our weaknesses. He faced temptations of every kind, yet remained sinless. He faced hunger, thirst, human emotions, temptations, and so on. Because he is fully human, but he is fully God. I want to read you a little story that I found. That this, this person that works with John MacArthur in some way often told this story. There was a man named Booth Tucker who was conducting evangelistic meetings in the Great Salvation Army Citadel in Chicago. One night after he had preached on the sympathy of Jesus, a man came forward and asked, Mr. Tucker, how could we talk? How could he talk about a loving, understanding, sympathetic God? If your wife had just died like mine has, the man said, and your babies were crying for their mother who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. A few days later, Mr. Tucker's wife was killed at a train wreck. Her body was brought to Chicago and carried to the Citadel for her funeral. After the service, the bereaved preacher looked down into the silent face of his wife and then turned to those who were attending. The other day when I was here, he said, a man told me that if my wife had just died and my children were crying for their mother, I would not be able to say that Christ was understanding and sympathetic or that he was sufficient for every need. If that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken. It is crushed. But it has a song. And Christ put it there. I want to tell that man that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. The man was there and he came and knelt beside the casket while Booth Tucker introduced him to Jesus Christ. We have a sympathetic high priest whose priesthood is perfect and whose person is perfect. Number three, his perfect provision. God understands everything about us. He's been there. Jesus walked our walk and yet remained sinless. His promise is to never leave us or forsake us. That includes in our times of temptation. Paul tells us that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, the temptation. God will not leave you in your darkest hour. He will always be there for you when your temptation comes. But you and I must take that way out. It is our responsibility to answer God's provision. It's not God's responsibility to make us do it. He gives us the way we have to answer the call. If your ship is sinking and God gives you a life raft, a rope, and a helicopter, it's up to you to reach out and take one of those things. Or you are in sin because God made a way. 
Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is that raft, that line, that helicopter. He is that provision. He is our perfect provision. Jesus always provides. Jesus is our priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is our great high priest because his priesthood is perfect. His person is perfect. And his provision is perfect. Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God. Our great high priest who sits at the right hand of the father. Interceding on our behalf. Making a way for us to stand in righteousness under his feet. Because he is the only way. He is what a big Bible word propitiation. He is the payment for our sin. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you for your, your provision. I thank you that you are perfect. You're holy. You're righteous. But God, you didn't leave us out on an island. You didn't leave us in the water to drown. You are the perfect provision. The perfect person of Jesus Christ has made that way. God, we thank you so much that you give us even a small opportunity, God, that we hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would do his work, that you would move in the hearts and lives of every person in this room, every person watching on Facebook. I pray, God, that you would just use the power of your spirit to just open our hearts to the truth of your gospel. Lord, that we might receive your provision, your grace, your willingness to start a relationship with us. Father, I pray that if you're drawing on any person in this room, that your Holy Spirit draws, that, Father, we would respond in faith. God, give us that gift of faith that we might answer the call. Lord, I pray that we would understand Jesus is our high priest. He's made a way, and he never stops interceding for us. Help us all to understand that truth today, Father. I pray, Lord, that we would understand what the purpose of Melchizedek coming was. It was to show us of a better sacrifice. Help us to understand that sacrifice. Help us to receive that sacrifice as our own. Lord, give us the faith we need. Lord, I pray that if anyone's here right now, God, that they would answer that call right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.